Hello, welcome to Irish Life and Lore Podcasts. I'm Maurice O'Keefe. During the month of December, I was asked by the Garda Shikana Kerry Divisional Centenary Commemorations Committee to give talks and use some historical sound clips in different venues around Kerry. And it all started in Listowel on the 30th of November to mark the occasion of the first Free State Police Force to arrive here in Kerry. And here are some of the sound clips I played that day, and it starts with Michael Finucan, who witnessed something extraordinary outside the barracks in Listowel. And this is before the Black and Tans had left. He was with his friend Con Brosnan, who had fought with the Kerry Flying Column. 1st of July 1921, that was the uh, uh, that was close down of the, of the fighting between the two countries, you know. And uh, that was the year of peace there, for up, to, up to the 26th of June 1922, when the, the Civil War started. Well, I was at home that time. My brother Willie and Con Brosnan, the famous Con Brosnan, met in, the, in my van and... I was brought along anyhow, by trap to the store, and then we left the horse there at the back of a pub, and then we walked down the town, and I was in front. You know the barracks in the store? I do indeed, yes. Well, we walked down the, bar- the, the road on the left, but uh, he was like, he's a very determined character, but uh, anyhow, we just coming near the barracks, he, he looked over, you see, and in front of the barracks, the black and tans were, you see. And uh, the ceasefire was on, and uh, there were a whole lot of about twelve soldiers, twelve, 12 black and tans outside the barracks. And there's a spa- you know the space before the barracks. There's uh, a little there, gap. There's just a, there, there, there is, a, and they were lolling around leisurely. And I was amazed to see that they were finally good men, just ordinary, ordinary fellows. You could meet anywhere, no different, relaxed, easy going, looking and happy and smiling. And, you know, we were taught there the scum of the, of the jails in England. There was no such thing. Uh, to me, it looked anyhow. And I had a good... Uh, and his, as soon as he saw them, the Colonel Barton saw them, he said to me, we'll go, we'll go with the rect here, see. Right <laughs> in the middle. And they had taken no notice of it all if I was there. But the minute that saw him, and I was the yard so behind they all became alerted. And they got stood up and each one was riveted to the ground. Each one knew about him. He was the most, that's how his picture every day, they were looking for him. They were looking for two years for him. And I was the RB, and I was able to observe, I looked around everywhere and saw the expression of every man in that crowd. And it was all, not aggression, it was stupefied, how could this happen? Dan Keating, a member of the anti-treaty side from Tralee, recalls the taking of Listowel Barracks. When the trouble started against the free staters, the first post to be taken was Listowel. There was a, a free state garrison there, commanded by Tom Kennelly. Kennelly's didn't like war, and he surrendered the barrack very quick. The people took everything that was in it, all the arms and everything. There was one man killed. He was mounting a machine gun early on in the day, and he was killed. On the 2nd of August 1922, the landing in Fenet Pier. This was the Lady Wicklow with 450 National Army's Dublin Guard. 
They then proceeded to march into Tralee, and this is recalled here by Archdeacon Rollsbliner Hassett. I particularly remember the landing in Fiennes. Well, there was all sorts of rumours. There was rumours that there was a landing and that there was an invasion and all sorts of things that you could think of. Nobody knew anything. There was no communication. However, on this particular morning, I was going down to a dental appointment. And as I passed the police barracks, which at that time was held by the Republican forces, I saw a very decrepit-looking armoured car pulled into the gateway and they were filling us with petrol and there was all sorts of activities which weren't normal in the usual course of events. And I said to myself, this is no place for you, Roland. And I got home as fast as I could. <laughs> Dan Keating. Father all the time around Bologna, come down and on. But then again, they had the armor cars, they had the, the field guns, which they didn't use on that occasion. They had the armor cars. They got command. And while they were doing all that, Humphrey Murphy and some others, they were burning the barracks in Tralee. And the IRA had just to go out to the country. Guerrilla days were back again. There was no law order. We had no, there was no guarantee. And at that time, there were a lot of Protestant farmers who were targeted by the IRA. Frank Blatterhassett was a member of the Blatterhassett family who were farming the land out in Ballymacalligat. I remember uh, quite clearly there was three, either three or four teams of mowing machines with horses, big black horses. As I could remember, they were black anyway. East and west, they were going to the, a 15-acre field. Oh, that's a big field, a lot of land. And it was all under lovely new hay. And they cut it down the whole lot and they saved it. And they drew it, carted it away and, and stacked it in a farmyard where we had full view of it. We could see them from the house. And why did your father go to the barracks then? To Naturally, he wasn't going to let him get away with it. The Free State was formed by then. We had our Free State 26 counties. And we had a police force which were operating as normal. And he went there, told the story, and they were all picked up. And they were charged and brought to court. I suppose summoned, you know, by the police. You see, you know yourself, it's like the situation, whatever trouble breaks out, people take the law into their own hands. Some people think they can get away with it, but they can't. Tom Lennerhassett, who was farming the land outside Killarney. There was trouble here in the 22, and my father, they, they went to shoot my father, actually. Or my, yes, well, I suppose it was my grandfather, I suppose. He was the man they were after. Or they wanted to get him out of the house here, actually. They wanted his farm back. And uh, what happened, the, the, some of the, the IRA men came to the place, and they said, we'll get him. And he was above in bed, my, my grandfather. And he told the lads, let him up, 
that I'll get my men. And rather than, than the IRA coming up the stairs, then they put the house on fire and ran. The first commissioner of the new Garda Síochána force was Michael Staines. I spoke to his grandson about the views he had on the mutiny in Kildare and the legacy that his grandfather left. The story about that was that um, obviously when the, in the new free state there was a need of a, a new police force and uh, there had been a meeting and uh, Collins uh, decided that he would be the, in effect the organiser of the uh, first Garda force. Mm. It wasn't called the Garda Shikona at the time, I think it was called the Civic Police. And um, so he set that up and then was made the commissioner mm. of it. Uh, what, there was a, the difficulty with it, of course, was that you had two sets of people who were joining the police force. You had, we'll say, old IRA volunteers and you also had old or, RIC men. Yeah. And the difficulty was that the, the force probably needed some RIC men because they would have been trained properly. They would have they would have known how to go about police work. Uh, so they would have liked to have been in it. Obviously, they, they want to get paid when you're in it as well. And, and, and then on the other hand, you had the volunteers who had been actually shooting at these RIC men several months earlier and then were not particularly happy seeing them in the force. And were certainly not happy when some of the RIC men then were made uh, their superiors in the force yeah. and were made officers in the force and then we had the, the mutiny in Kildare where in fact uh, the the force uh, some of the force mutinied because they said that they didn't want in effect to be uh, um, governed by our ex-RIC men so uh, as a result of that mutiny he, re he, he resigned and uh, then I think they later brought in a rule that sitting TDs and, and politicians should never be commissioners and that's in fact the rule that they have that they have now so Ono Duffy then took over, but he's he's well known for a few things he said. I mean, the, his speech that he made talking about, um, you know, that a country has to be governed not by force of arms but by respect yeah. for is is part of the Garda logo logo now. And every time you meet any I meet any Garda commissioner, the first thing they do is talk to me about him and about the speech that he made and how important it was that we would have an unarmed police force. Yeah. So that is a legacy that he did leave, and that speech could be seen both in the, G, in the Garda headquarters and in Dublin Castle. Maury Hughes, who grew up in Killarney in the 1920s, recalls that uh, one of the qualifications was to speak fluent Irish in the guards. And there was a ditty going around at the time, and she sang this for me. It was the time that the, uh, the Garda Shihana was formed. And it, it was one of the things, one of their qualifications was a and uh, speak language, Irish language, that they could speak Irish language. Okay. So that's where this was the jogger that was around going around Dublin at the time. Garda Sheehana, Garda Sheehana, spotting away at his Irish prep. Though his buttons be bright, if his Gaelic's not right, up to promotion he'll never step. Moving into the 1930s and 40s, I spoke to Michael Kilkenny, who qualified from the Guards in 1939, and his first post was in Dunleary. And he explains here how he didn't really get on too well with the superintendent, and he was quickly transferred to a remote country station in Kerry. I was a guard from 1939 to 1946 in Dunleary. Charles was just back after the war, you know, 1945, just November 45. And I stopped a number of cars, and I stopped one car 
I asked the man, I said, I want to see your driving license, please. And God, he said, I haven't one. I said, do you not have it with you? No, he said, I haven't. I have, I have no driving license. He said, I just haven't one. Well, I said, I, you're committing an offence. I said, look, he says, I'm one of the people that make the laws of this country. His name was Senator McEllen from County Mayo. Oh, Senator. Yes. I'm one of the men that make the laws of this country. Well, I said, I hope you appreciate how I'm enforcing them for you. I was full of sarcasm. Next day at about 12 o'clock in the day, I was told to call up the superintendent's office. I'm not allowing the summons to go through. Well, I said, if you're not, I said, I'm not putting down another summons. And the longest day that I'm here, and that you're here, I said, I never put down another summons here. So Michael explains here that he had to pack his bags and head for the kingdom. The 10th of June 1946, I arrived in Laurel. Got off the train in Kenmare and the Hackney car, I remember. I said, I want to drive you out to Laurel Yard Station. Oh, he says, we're out here, far out. Oh, it is just about 17 miles out. <laughs> so we drove out anyway and arrived there in the evening time and pulled up at this building around the road. He looked up there, he said, there's the guard station up there, he said. And I had a luggage with me and we carried it up to the station. And there was a sergeant, I remember the sergeant in the garden digging there, he was sowing vegetables or something like that. And he came in and... Oh, he said, I, he said, are you the new guard? Yes, I said, I am. And he told me his name and brought me in and there were two other guards there. He said, now tomorrow, he said, we go to the court, myself and this other two other guards there. He said, we go to the, there's a court, a court on in Kenmare and we have to go to it. And you'll be barricaded here. And that was, the, you were in charge of the station. And then he said, we have the superintendent. He said he could do his inspection tomorrow. And what was his name? Bat Hart. He was superintendent in Killarney. Killarney was, was 40 miles distance from Laurel. My goodness. <laughs> Tralee was 62, I think. What did you do for transport? Uh, oh, it was a bicycle. <laughs> <laughs> so the superintendent arrived anyway. He said, uh, you, you knew man, what did you do to get here? He said, you'll see my file, I said. I'm a... Very exemplary man. He said, you never get out of here. Oh, I said, you don't know Irish history or you wouldn't say that. What do you mean? I said, I'll give you two examples. Now, in 1932, I said, Dev got into power and he reduced the number eight Esperance sergeants. And that, I said, and they were reduced to the rank of Gardaí. In 1940, I said, they got legal advice and they threatened an action against the government for unlawful reduction in rank and loss of earnings. The government settled with them, gave them back the back pay for eight years, and the ranks. In 1943, I said they wanted to promote a man to the rank of inspector in special ranch. The man they had in view, I said, was murdered by the IRA out in Rathfarnham, and they had to select another man. And they selected a man named, I said, named Michael Gill. Now, I said, Michael Gill was one of the men that was reduced in 1932. But I said there was one difficulty with him. He hadn't the class 1A or 1B literary or educational exam, I said. Mm. So the government had to bring in a special act of parliament that enabled the commissioner to promote to the rank of inspector or any man that he thought fit for the rank. I said, and Michael Gill got in there without having those literary qualifications. And if the time ever comes that I want to become an inspector or commissioner, I don't need any of those, I said. I have the ability to get there on my own. 
And when the sergeant of Lorak station returned, Michael told him what had happened. I told the sergeant what happened. Lord Jesus, I would love to be here telling the superintendent no, no Irish history. And, that, and he said, he's down on the whole lot of us now. One of the big changes in Garda Shukana happened in the 19, late 50s when women started to join the Garda force. Mary Stratford Nee Garvey was one of those women. In 1959, the first 12 Bangardi were on the newspapers and when I saw it, I thought, this is what I would like to do. In actual fact, I'm the first clear female member of Angarda My, and tell me, this is, this is very early. I did, they, they were just accepting women into the force at that time. It had just started in 1958. The government thought that it would be a good idea to have women in the force. Where did you go to train? And uh, yes. talk to me about all that. First of all, we did an exam in Limerick, and then you were given given a place, and uh, mine was third in Ireland, and then um, we had to go to Dublin and do a medical, an interview, and an oral Irish. And for the first time in May 1962, Mary, with a group of other Bangardi, travelled by train in uniform to Limerick. I remember well when they decided to send us, the, the people in, in the depot decided maybe they'd send us on the train in uniform. So this was the first time that guards ever travelled going to a station in uniform. So we arrived down and the press met us in Limerick Station. When you were in Limerick, so uh, when you were on the beat and walking down the street, did you ever get whistles or people? Yes, but we ignored it. We mostly ignored it. We probably laughed at them or whatever. On one instance, um, there was a match and we were out on duty and right in front of my eyes, two cars crashed. And I went over and spoke to the guy who crashed into the back of the other fella and he said to me, it's your fault. I was looking at you. I'd never seen a woman guard before. In the 1970s, when Donal O'Sullivan was superintendent in Tralee, he recalled how he had to deal with stolen cars and vans which were driven to the north of Ireland, then packed with explosives and used as human bombs. The major problem was uh, vehicles being stolen in Tralee being taken up to a meeting point in County Mayo where they were taken over by people from the northern regions and then stuffed with um, bomb-making material and so on used as bombs. We had one particular nasty case where a van was taken and uh, it, it was taken up, taken over by the Northern Ireland people, 
and the massive bomb put in it. Then the, an unfortunate man who was probably maybe fond of drink or something, I don't know, but um, they put him into the van as a driver and told him that he was to drive to the checkpoint uh, and uh, just park the van there and to run away from yeah. it. He went to the checkpoint all right, but the minute he went to open the door, obviously, blue blew checkpoint, I think killed five or six soldiers, uh, and blew him, of course, into eternity. Yeah. And the only piece of the, the only way we could recognize the van was because of a few papers which had been in the door of the van were found in the oh locality. Oh my God, really? Yeah. yeah. I, I, it was, it was, by far, then there was another one taken, whereby there was a, a great kickback kick from the Northern Ireland people, a cab was taken, and it was taken down the laneway, actually I saw the laneway, uh, taken down the laneway near St. Collins Cathedral. St. Mm -hmm. Collins Cathedral yeah. is the most sacred place in, in Derry. Yeah. And uh, it may be Church of Ireland, but it is, it is a... A, a famous landmark as well as everything else. A, a bomb went off on that and it blew all the the stained glass windows yeah. did over a million pounds worth of damage to the cathedral. And to illustrate how real that problem in the north of Ireland was at the time, I spoke to David Jordan. He was farming the land near the border. There was one evening that I had been looking at my cattle on the out farms. And on my way home, I noticed maybe suspicious activity of vehicles where they shouldn't have been. And I proceeded on home and uh, lifted a neighbour's child at her house to leave him home to his own house. And it was just coming dusk. Darkness was falling, and it was in the beginning of May in 1976. And whenever I dropped this young lad off at his home, I come back down the avenue and was approached by a number of armed men. I was fortunate to make get past them and get out onto the, the road and come on back to my own house. I later learnt that uh, they wanted the car, and probably me, to drive the car into a local village with a bomb on board. Uh, I was so fortunate that I got away that night, because I don't know if the bomb would have went off with me in the car. You've been listening to a selection of sound clips that I've been using uh, while giving presentations and talks in the Stole, Carcevine, Canmare and Tralee over the month of December. I hope you enjoyed listening and I look forward to bringing you another podcast next week. <laughs>